With Democrats now in the majority, how will they address budget negotiations with President Donald Trump in the GOP-controlled Senate? Find out on this special episode of Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor, joined by my fellow legislative analyst, Danielle Parnas, and BGov budget and appropriations reporter and frequent suspending the rules guest, Jack Fitzpatrick. Thanks for having me back. On Wednesday, January 30th, Bloomberg government held a 2019 Hill Watch event at our K Street office. You might have already listened to our earlier special episode with a panel discussion among the legislative analysts. During the event, Jack, you got to take the stage with House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmouth. That panel has a really broad purview, including public health care programs. Yeah, I, I asked him about what he's going to do on Medicare for All. He's, he said he's going to hold hearings on really the whole array of proposals that Democrats have thrown out there using the phrase Medicare for All and kind of suss out which ones are the most fiscally responsible or if any of them really are fiscally responsible. He's fairly far left as far as supporting efforts to increase health care coverage, take down prescription drug prices, but he was a little skeptical about some of the more ambitious plans that that have gotten that label. Recent budget resolutions have generally called for a balanced budget within the 10-year window, at least when Republicans have been in the House. But Yarmouth doesn't think that's realistic. Why is that? Uh, Really, we just have too much debt and too high a deficit right now. I I wanted to see how realistic he was going to be and how ambitious he was going to be with his fiscal 2020 budget proposal and asked him, you know, what's the best you can do? He kind of laid out pie in the sky, maybe over the course of 10 years, we could have it project to cut the deficit by half. But really, he said, I think the important number that he brought up was we're at a 4.4% deficit to GDP ratio right now, something like 3% would be more sustainable. So uh, that's uh, even less than half going away. He he did criticize the budget committee for sometimes being unrealistic and promising a a balanced budget. And I kind of pressed him on some of the details of how he's going to get there, including assuming higher taxes. So that was my first question was, what can you accomplish and is it possible to balance? And he started out with, as you'll hear, a hard no on balancing the budget. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, Thank you, Chairman Yarmouth, for joining us. As Lauren mentioned, uh, we've got the chairman of the Budget Committee here uh, with us at a a pretty good time to uh, discuss fiscal issues. Uh, The Congressional Budget Office had a a report on the economic outlook that came out on Monday. Yesterday, you uh, chaired a hearing uh, and summed it up saying the state of of the union is unsustainable. Uh, So the first thing I want to ask you about, uh, and also I'll remind everyone that we will take your questions at the end, so start brainstorming. But the first thing I want to start with is as you work on a budget resolution for fiscal year 2020 in this setting of 78% uh, debt to GDP ratio, what do you think you can realistically accomplish in that budget resolution? And in particular, is it possible for that to project to balance any time in the next 10 years? Um, I'll answer the last question first. Uh, Thanks, Jack, for having me, and to Bloomberg and all of you for being here. No, there's no way we could get to a balanced budget in the 10-year window. If we did, it would uh, have to rely on incredibly unrealistic economic assumptions and a lot of gimmicks that uh, has been the habit of uh, the budget committee, both under Republicans and Democrats, since I've been here. 
So what we're going to try to do is hold the line on the deficit as much as we can. We'd like to reduce the deficit. And I said, you know, pie in the sky. You know, it'd be great if we could reduce the deficit by half at the end of the window. Uh, the projection right now is the end of the window deficit would be $1.4 trillion that year. Uh, <clears throat> to reduce the deficit by $700 billion is probably not going to happen. But we're going to take our best shot at seeing what we can do to at least keep the situation from getting worse. And you know, the, the deficit right now as a, as a percentage of GDP is 4.4%. Most economists say 3% of GDP is sustainable. So that's what we're going to try to to work toward. Realistically, our budget resolution is going to be somewhat irrelevant uh, in terms of actually material impact on the, on the government spending or on the economy. But what we hope to do is to show in the budget resolution and throughout the next two years and other policy initiatives what we're going to, how we envision the future of the country. Uh, with a split government, we're not going to get much enacted over the last two years, but we can show a different direction for the country. That's what I hope to do in the budget resolution. Right. Well, it, it, one of the reasons the budget resolution is a, an interesting thing to take a look at, even if it is kind of purely an aspirational document, is you've got to determine uh, what assumptions you build into that, what kind of democratic policies uh, are at least somewhat realistic, and you, you talk to other uh, chairmen of other committees about that. Uh, I just asked you yesterday about the possibility of including an assumption about raising the corporate tax rate. Uh, can you tell us about what are the key assumptions that you plan to uh, build into the resolution, uh, and uh, especially on taxes, do, do, do you need to bank on higher taxes in order to have a responsible fiscal outlook? I don't think there's any way to deal with um, the very daunting fiscal challenge we have as a country without looking at the revenue side of the budget. And so we will definitely do that. Now, our committee just got stood up last week. So we haven't had a chance to have a discussion among our members yet as to what pri different priorities are. But uh, I would think that looking at both clawing back some of the, the tax cuts, uh, particularly on the corporate side, has to be under consideration. Uh, particularly since last year, the, the impact that Republicans promised in terms of what corporations would do with the saved money did not come to pass. As a matter of fact, over a trillion dollars worth of stock buybacks, a lot of increased dividends, very little reinvested in the economy. And so that's got to be one thing we look at. But also, there's still a lot of tax expenditures and tax loopholes that uh, are there to help on the revenue side, carried interest being one. And I think there'll be a lot of interest in looking at that as well. Okay. When it comes, as you mentioned, uh, you, you got stood up by OMB, you're referring to, right? Uh, on no, 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 I'm saying our members, our, our members for our committee were just established last week. Oh, right. We just got our members. Oh, well, it seems like you're about to be stood up by OMB on the <laughs> timing of the uh, budget proposal. Not that that's unusual. That usually comes late. Technically, you're supposed to get it by Monday. Now, we had the longest shutdown in the country's history. OMB had about a third of its staff uh, essential working through that. Do you know 
first, when you're going to get a budget proposal from the White House, even remotely? And, and second, can you tell us what was the effect of that shutdown on just the schedule for Congress to do its work? Are, are you going to be able to do a resolution on time? How did that affect the outlook going forward? No, I think we'll be able to do a resolution on time. As a matter of fact, uh, Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, has said he wants to do all the appropriations bills in June. So that dictates when we get the top lines established. Um, part of that's the budget resolution. Part of that's a negotiation on the caps because right now we're facing uh, for, for fiscal 20, uh, sequestration levels, which would mean 11% cut in defense and 9% non-defense discretionary. So that's got to be taken care of as, as well before we start appropriations process. Um, and then we've got the debt ceiling, which is another um, little hill to, to overcome. So I think we are expecting maybe a two to three week delay from OMB. That's kind of the, the estimate we've gotten. But that's not going to prevent our work. We're actually starting right now the process, meeting with all the caucuses, meeting with the, the committee chairs to see where uh, everyone wants to go. So we won't be held up. Um, OMB, again, will be late. Uh, as you mentioned, the budget caps sometimes almost are the de facto uh, budget resolution, uh, uh, the framework for spending negotiations going forward. 11% uh, and 9% cut if you don't do anything. What do you want to see that level go to? What are those conversations like right now? Well, uh, I've met with Mike Enzi, the chairman of the Budget Committee in the, in the Senate. We've begun conversations about where we are on what, the, uh, what kind of a potential agreement would, uh, would be possible. The agreement we reached 18 months ago for the last year and a half of uh, the last year and a half of our budget, of our spending, uh, was something that was done, I think, very, uh, on, a, on a very reasonable basis. Uh, our people were satisfied, to a certain extent, dissatisfied. So were the Republicans, so that means it's a good agreement. So I, I don't see why, you know, this may be naive of me, but I don't see why we would, uh, well, I know Democrats would not expect any worse deal from the perspective of making sure our non-defense discretionary priorities are met than we had in the last agreement. And um, you know, I know both, um, I know uh, Senator McConnell and our leadership wants to do a two-year budget agreement because we want to try and put off as many of these uh, cliffs as we can. So I, I think it's actually going to be a, a, a fairly agreeable process. And, and I think we're looking, we're looking probably at a deal that resembles the deal for the last half of fiscal 18 and 19. Such as uh, an increase compared to the current level rather than just stemming the decrease. Exactly, okay. exactly. Um, and then, as you, as you probably know, the, de the, the caps, the sequestration laws all expired after 21. So well, if we can get, that's, which is another reason to do two years. We get through that, then we don't have to deal with uh, sequestration anymore. You're, you're about to be free if you can do a two-year deal. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you also mentioned the debt ceiling. Uh, now, technically, that comes back into play March 1st, but there's some question as to what extraordinary measures right. can be used and, and when the real deadline is for our country's borrowing. Have you gotten an update uh, from the Treasury Department as to when, when that's going to be, when more information is going to come out? The last I heard was, the last update we had was they thought we could go into June, possibly with extraordinary measures. But um, 
you know, Lindsey Graham now wants to make the debt ceiling part of the border security debate, which is, excuse me, insane, um, as is the debt limit in my, in my estimation. I mean, we, we've reimposed the, the Gephardt rule which, uh, in the House rules so that if we approve appropriations, it's deemed to have been, uh, the debt ceiling's deemed to have been increased. So you know, we're the only country in the world other than Denmark that has a statutory debt limit, and we've, I don't know how, waved it, I don't know how many times, probably close to 80 now. So it makes no sense, but I was part of the Joint Select Committee on Budget and Appropriations Process Reform, which worked all last year. There were numerous discussions about changing the debt limit, even going to, to get part rule for both the House and Senate. Uh, it got very little traction, so we're stuck with it for the time being. I believe that Joint Select Committee also at least briefly discussed some of these ideas about an automatic stopgap measure so that when we get to this kind of impasse on spending, we don't have a shutdown. Uh, it sounds like Democrats in particular are a little skeptical about using that, that maybe that would almost be its own form of sequestration. What do you think of that idea of an automatic continuing resolution? To me, and, and we again, you're right, we discussed this in, on numerous occasions of the Joint Select Committee, to me, it's just a way of excusing us for not doing our job. Uh, but as a matter of fact, that's what, kind of what we concluded about the entire process. The problem with budget and appropriations is not structural or process. It is personal political courage and will. And <clears throat> this kind of lets us off the hook. So you know, I know the appropriators hate the idea because they want to appropriate. And Nina Lowy, chairman of the Appropriations Committee, said she's very much opposed to the automatic CRs. Um, but there's, there are other options, and that is, for instance, to make sure that, that at least the employees are paid, even though the, um, the agencies might, themselves might be technically shut down, the operations may be shut down. So I, I, I will say that since the shutdown, those ideas have gained a lot more um, momentum than they had in our joint select committee. So uh, there may be enough interest in doing that that something evolves. Okay. I do want to make sure I ask about a couple of the top policy areas, uh, at least that have come up in your committee that had a, a significant uh, fiscal effect. Now, I, I know, I believe you're planning on holding hearings later on some sort of Medicare for all proposal and how that would work uh, financially. Uh, what can you tell us about how that's going to go? And it, it, in your role as chairman of the Budget Committee in particular, uh, you know, the criticism from conservatives is that's something we can't possibly pay for. Uh, how, how are you going to take that on fiscally? Well, that's really the purpose of what we're going to do, is to find out what's possible. You know, Democrats, a vast majority of Democrats are for some version of Medicare for all. And there is a danger in using that phrase to cover an awful lot of, uh, a wide variety of actual policies. So Pramila Jayapal's legislation, which is Bernie Sanders plus, so she takes Bernie Sanders' proposal, which is, in my opinion, not Medicare for all. It is universal, unlimited health care with no consumer taxpayer contribution, and you get whatever you want whenever you want it. And then she adds vision, dental, and long-term care to that. Well, she wants to call it Medicare for All because Medicare has a good, is a good brand, but it's something very different. And then there are proposals to expand Medicare to people over 50 years old, to have an, uh, use it as a public option where people can buy into it. 
So what the purpose of our hearings will be is to really assess all the variables that we have to consider and to try to figure out what is possible, if any of it's possible, financially. So it's, it's really not to get a score of any particular piece of legislation, but, and that, that's why we asked CBO to do a report for us, which we'll get in another probably two months, over all the things we have to consider as we're examining the possible expansion of Medicare and uh, how that would impact the budget. What's your starting point on that? Is anything that could fit under the umbrella term Medicare for all something that, would, that could possibly be responsible? You know, I think, there's, I think a number of the options can be made to be responsible. Obviously, you can generate revenue any way you, you want to to pay for it. We're spending, um, you know, three to four trillion dollars on health care every year, um, about a third of that on the federal ledger and two-thirds off. So there's plenty of money out there. We spend twice as much per healthcare, on health care per person as anyone else in the country, virtually twice as much. So we know we can make changes, but just in general on healthcare, uh, we're not gonna pass Medicare for all this Congress. No question about that. But again, we can show what the options are for the country and, what, and get a sense of what they may cost. We still have some very, very pressing healthcare needs and priorities. One is to shore up the Affordable Care Act. The second is to do something about costs, specifically prescription drugs. So, we're going to move on those areas and then, again, take a longer-term view of Medicare for All, expanded health care, see what we can afford. Well, I also wanted to make sure I ask you about immigration because that's another issue that already came up in yesterday's uh, hearing on CBO. Uh, you, and you've also mentioned the possibility of holding a hearing on sort of the fiscal effects of various immigration policies. Right. It sounds like there's... Uh, a lot of support, um, or at least some support among Democrats for making the case that increased immigration uh, really can help boost the GDP. There's a, a workforce uh, issue there. What, what do you expect, uh, even if there's not comprehensive immigration reform, can you tell us a little bit about what you're focusing on uh, as far as immigration policies uh, through the budget lens? Well, again, everything we do, we're going to do hearings on climate change. We're going to do a hearing on artificial intelligence. They're all with, within the frame of what this means for the taxpayers through the budget. That's our focus. So we're not getting into policy. So going back to healthcare for a second, one of the huge questions, if you're talking about Medicare for all and universal coverage, is what's the infrastructure going to cost? How is that possible? If you had long-term care available for everyone, who's going to build all the skilled nursing facilities? Uh, who's going to make sure there are enough physicians and para, um, paramedical people? That's not our, pur <laughs> our purview at all. We're, we're focused on the budget. So with immigration, in 2013, I was part of the group of eight that, in the House that was working on comprehensive immigration reform. The Senate passed a bill uh, in April of that year, bipartisan bill. CBO said that that would raise GDP by 1.5%. Uh, that's a huge number. We know that uh, if you have large numbers of um, new immigrants into the country who are working. They'll be paying into Medicare and Social Security, not using the, the, the services for 25 or 30 years. So it helps shore up those programs. We know there is a huge economic opportunity if we do immigration reform correctly. So that's what we're going to be looking at. All right. Well, we've got a, a few minutes for audience questions. Are, are we ready to go uh, with audience questions? 
I think we've got a couple. We've got mics right back there. One mic over here, one mic over there. Uh, if anybody has anything ready to go, get someone over here. Um, my name is Ross Capon. Um, uh, Medicare for all, when the cost of it is typically batted around, do those estimates include, do, do they net out the benefits? In other words, uh, everybody going to emergency room because they could never afford to take care of things. Uh, there's a whole host of, I think, positives that I wonder if those are cranked in when, when the cost of Medicare for all is thrown around. Well, we certainly will consider that. It's a great question. We certainly will consider those. CBO has had a hard time factoring those uh, impacts into their scores. Like, I've, I've pressed, again, I've been on the committee now for 10 years, and I've always asked the CBO director, why can't you score the benefits of preventative care? And they will say, for two reasons. One, we're not sure there are any. Secondly, if you keep people al alive longer, that's great, and you reduce health care costs but then you have higher social security costs and things to, you know, retirement, they li they're living longer, so you gotta support that. So we're gonna look into it, uh, not with a view to get a number, because I've learned one thing, numbers have an unbelievably disproportionate impact on the public. <laughs> when you say, Bernie Sanders' bill is $32 trillion, as Mercatus did, that number gets, cemented into people's heads and it's dangerous and it doesn't consider all the other impacts. So uh, again, it's a long answer, but we'll be considering that. Uh, it's tough to get CBO to, to change their models to do it. It has been so far. Good morning, uh, Max Trujillo from MJT Policy. I wanted to ask you, throughout the wall debate and the closure of the, of the government, the president has made several announcements regarding how he sees some of the funding as fungible that he can transfer from one account to a different account. As a budget chairman, do you see this as a threat in terms of how Congress not only appropriates money, but plans on how the money is going to be used? And what measures do you see the committee taking in order to make sure that congressional um, mandates and responsibilities under the Constitution are not bypassed through executive order? Right. So as my understanding, and I'm not a constitutional attorney, it's my understanding that if he were to take, declare a military emergency, a military emergency, that he probably could legally move funds f within Department of Defense to meet that, that military emergency. He would not be allowed to take funds from HUD and move them over. That is purely the prerogative of Congress. And if he tried to do that, there would be significant legal, um, legal action initiated. Yeah, we would, we would work extremely aggressively to protect the congressional initiative there. Very inquisitive table. Yeah, we've got the, the question table right here. <laughs> so in the last Congress, uh, the proportion of the budget that went to defense uh, increased. Uh, do you think that's out of whack? Personally, I think it's out of whack. Are you going to do anything about it? <laughs> Well, I, see, I think you'll see an approach to the, a different approach to the, that in our budget resolution than you might see on the Senate side and certainly in the, in the President's budget. But you know, when you look at the audit of the Pentagon, which has for the first time been done, and the amount of money, taxpayer money, that they have not been able to account for, 
the idea that we would give them substantial increases without some kind of sense of, of whether it would be responsibly not just spent but accounted for, um, that to me is irresponsible. We've got one right over there. Good morning. Uh, Alan Roberson with the Associated State Drink Water Administrator. So I wanted to ask you about infrastructure. I hadn't heard that mentioned this morning. I wonder if you had any thoughts about infrastructure, you know, road, bridges, water, sewer, that kind of stuff. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about it. This is one of those areas in which I think uh, we absolutely have to, have to move. Uh, I, I represent Louisville, Kentucky. I'm like a lot of other representatives of uh, old urban areas where we have water systems that are 100 to 150 years old. We have, we have leaks and um, collapses of streets on a regular basis right now. Uh, we have huge amounts of investment that we have to make, not in new infrastructure, but in just maintaining what we have. And you know, I don't know what the, you know, the last estimate I heard was two to three trillion dollars of unmet um, infrastructure maintenance needs, not just uh, new infrastructure. So I think everybody knows that we have to do that. The question is, obviously, how to get money for it. We lost one of the, I thought, the best ways to fund infrastructure in the tax bill because we were going to, well, there was a proposal, John Delaney from Maryland, now running for president, he had a, a bill to use repatriated earnings. We lost, so we've lost that opportunity. Uh, I have a bill that I'm working on, we're going to introduce that uses, that creates a very long, a long-term federal bond, Rebuild America bonds, 40-year bonds with a subsidy of the interest rate that will be sold only to pension funds. The idea being you generate money for, re for infrastructure and, and you also help deal with the pension crisis that uh, is a, another very serious challenge we have. So you give pensions the opportunity to get a consistent, decent return over a long period of time, help them uh, shore up their funds. So we'll see if that gets any traction. Uh, so th th there's you know, Paul, uh, Peter DeFazio, who's now chairman of transportation and infrastructure. He has, um, he has a, a proposal that involves um, increasing the gas tax. So there are a variety of options available to us, but we have to settle on something because, again, it, the situation only gets worse with our infrastructure. And uh, as the wealthiest country in the world, it's, it's embarrassing. And it's also getting to be a severe impediment to growth and, uh, and economic uh, prosperity. That was my interview with House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmuth, recorded at Bloomberg Government's 2019 Hill Watch event on January 30th. Thanks, Jack. BGov subscribers can find all of his budget and appropriations reporting at BGov.com. And if you haven't, be sure to go back in our podcast feed to listen to a panel discussion among the legislative analyst team. And stay tuned for another special episode in which BGov Homeland Security reporter Michaela Ross interviews Senator Mike Rounds. Thanks for listening to this special episode. We'll be back with a regular edition of the podcast next week.